Coming up next on Tech News Weekly, it is our last live show of the year. Best of coming next week. But before we get there, three awesome interviews this week, starting with Netflix and kind of what it's doing to revitalize its business. We have Sarah Krause from The Wall Street Journal uh, talking about that. Some of the biggest ups and downs in the tech world of digital, everything digital. Well, David Carr from Similar Web has some really interesting insights there. Is Mastodon buckling under all of this attention that it's getting. Amanda Hoover from Wired joins us for that. And then finally, Micah's story of the week has to do with a Girl Scouts mom who was kicked out of Madison Square Garden's Rockettes show thanks to facial recognition. All that and more coming up next on Tech News Weekly. Podcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twitch. This is Tech News Weekly, episode 265, recorded Thursday, December 22nd, 2022. This episode of Tech News Weekly is brought to you by Code Comments, an original podcast from Red Hat that lets you listen in on two experienced technologists as they describe their building process and what they've learned from their experiences. Search for Code Comments in your podcast player. And by Barracuda. Barracuda has identified 13 types of email threats and how cyber criminals use them every day. Phishing, conversation hacking, ransomware, plus 10 more tricks cyber criminals use to steal money from your company or personal information from your employees and customers. Get your free ebook at barracuda.com slash TNW. Hello and welcome to Tech News Weekly, the show where every week we talk to and about the people making and breaking the tech news. Happy holidays. I am Micah Sargent, one of your hosts. I'm the other guy, Jason Howell, looking around my room to see if my Santa hat is anywhere near me because I only just realized (laughs) you're wearing yours and I'm not wearing mine. I am the Grinch today. Look at me. I am the Grinch today. Uh, I've also got my my tree in the background as well. So, you know, doing the whole thing. You're living uh, it up. (laughs) That's right. This is the last live episode of Tech News Weekly for the year. We do have another episode lined up for next week. It'll be a best of some of our favorite interviews that we picked out uh, from the year. But we've got some awesome interviews lined up for today. In fact, three of them. Normally we do two, but today we're changing it up right at the end of the year. So let's jump in. Uh, Netflix. Okay, I've been a subscriber of Netflix for uh, many years at this point. I think most people you know, that we have in our technology circles probably have it's, it's a, been a powerful force in streaming media. They've been instituting some changes that we talked about on this show, planning others uh, to help turn around its subscriber count and kind of keep things, you know, profitable as companies like to do. So how has that been going? We've got some changes kind of on the horizon. So joining us to talk about the latest is Sarah Krause uh, with The Wall Street Journal. Welcome to the show, Sarah. Thanks for having me. You bet. It's great to get you here. Thank you for hopping on. I know that this is like this is like the the point where we're all winding up and, and kind of tidying loose ends in order to get ready for the holiday break. So the fact that you're giving us 15 minutes of your time uh, today is even more appreciated. So thank you. Um, but it's really great to get you on. Let's uh, let's start talking about kind of what's going on with Netflix right now. We've talked a little bit in the past about what some of their plans are. Now we're a few months kind of in and we're kind of seeing some of the, you know, the developments here. Let's start with a subscription offering. Before last month, Netflix did not have a subscription offering uh, with ads supporting uh, the, the, the payments. 
Now we've had that for about a month. You wrote about an analytics firm and their report on how that's going for them. What exactly did they say? So um, I wrote about antenna data on how Netflix's ad tier has been going. And what it found was in November, which albeit we're one month in, first month, um, that the ad-supported tier was the least popular of Netflix's four tiers of service during that month. And the plan accounted for 9% of new Netflix signups in the U.S. during the period. So um, beneath that data was sort of a breakdown of what percentage of it was new customers who either had never been a Netflix customer before or were returning to join this plan um, versus those who were sort of shifting down from other Netflix plans. So about 60% of the subscribers to the ad-supported tier, 57%, were returning Netflix customers or new Netflix customers. So that figure is a sign that this offering is bringing in people or bringing back people um, that were deterred by the pricier plans. Um, but I would say that that overall for this new tier to be the least expensive in the first month on the market um, is something that, that raises a question of how long it will take for Netflix to find its stride in this regard. And, and I should add, Netflix has said that there are some inaccuracies in the data that Antenna presented. Um, they hadn't specified which. So um, we're, we're left to deal with the industry data that we have. Yeah, we at the end of the day, it's the data that we have. If Netflix isn't giving us anything to counter against it, then I, I guess this is what we go with. But you contrast in your article kind of the success of HBO Max um, in kind of spinning up their own ad-supported part of their business. And what struck me was the difference in the downgrades. You talked a little bit about the, you know, kind of the, the different metrics uh, that the report um, was pointing out. Downgrades, of course, being the thing that Netflix doesn't want. At the end of the day, they really want new users coming in, being enticed. You know, maybe they've been sitting on the fence like, oh, maybe I'll, I'll check out Netflix one of these days. The ad-supported tier comes along and it's a lesser price than, uh, than they would pay otherwise, so they're lured in. But instead, we've got this higher percentage percentage of downgrading users, which are users who were paying higher and now are saying, well, I'll pay less instead and, and get the ad supported model. How that comparison contrasts to how HBO Max did in its first month. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So, well, first of all, with Netflix, there are um, there are three other higher priced tiers of plans. And Netflix has said, we don't mind so much if people move from the $9.99 basic plan into the ad tier because we'll get the monthly subscription of $6.99 plus ad revenue. So if okay. people move from the $9.99 to that, not so bad. If they move from the standard so or premium tiers, which go up to $20 a month, that is a problem. But when we look at how Netflix's ad tier did compared to HBO Max's, there were fewer downgrades overall. And there are a few reasons why that could be the case. It could be, you know, um, that people assign more value to HBO content and are saying basically with their wallets that we're willing to pay a premium to not see ads in that. It could be that when HBO Max launched, so we're comparing Netflix's first launch month to HBO Max's, which was June of 2021. Um, it could be that um, at that time, Warner Brother was doing a day, we're doing a day and date uh, premiere of movies on the streaming services as well as in theaters. And those films were only available to customers on the ad free tier. They were not on the ad tier. That could have played a role in HBO's data. Um, you know, and it could just be that Netflix has more plans, period. And so that there was more opportunity to move from different tiers down to um, or to the ad tier. 
Yeah, yeah. And the the other part of this that struck me was looking at HBO Max. Now we've got the benefit of uh, of you know a year a year more than a year's worth of development around its ad supported tier. That's now that's almost a quarter of their their business with HBO Max is ad supported. Um, and it's impossible to tell the future, but. Is is it likely? I mean, can we even make a guess as far as you know whether Netflix is going to be on par? Like, is this just the kind of thing that across all streaming networks, if they've got an ad supported tier, generally it's taking about that chunk, or might Netflix see less or more? Or I don't know. What do you think? You know, there's a huge variety in the percentage among the other streamers that have ad supported tiers. Peacocks is as high as ninety percent in the U.S. Um, and so there's really variation that has to do with the value of the content assigned, the type of user that is signing up for that streaming service, if they're conditioned to have, maybe they watch a lot of cable and they are totally fine with commercials and they're used to it. So they are willing to pay less to see the content on the streaming platform, but are willing to watch ads. Um, for Netflix, it's still very early days, so it's impossible to predict where this is going. But I do think that there are a number of factors that influence consumers' decisions. And Netflix has said themselves, they may have different versions of ad tiers going forward for now for this sort of table stake starting point. Um, it is most comparable to their basic plan in that um, it's lower, it's still high definition, but it's lower viewing quality than the higher price plans that Netflix offers. It also only allows one device of simultaneous viewing. Um, so that's the most directly comparable plan. And I think once you have different ad tiers and features that are more comparable to the pricier plans that allow more simultaneous streams or have, um, different, um, different resolutions or, or higher quality viewing, then you could start to see more movement too. So I would say that the success of this depends in some ways on the features that that come about or how consumer preferences evolve. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. Uh, well, that will be interesting. We'll have to do a, a year check-in next year and see how that worked out for them. The other problem you know, the of this, other, of course... Oh, yeah, sorry, go. I, I was going to say the other thing to keep in mind is we've, we've talked about HBO Max, but you also have Disney Plus launching its ad-supported service for the first time in December. So um, something that I'm really interested to see how it plays out is how Netflix's ad-supported tier fares compared to how Disney Plus's ad-supported tier fares. Um, Disney launched its in a, in a slightly different way than Netflix. So Netflix has said, we want consumers to decide to join our ad-supported tier. So um, you can downgrade if you want, or you can come in new, but we want everybody who's in that tier to have opted in. The way Disney has launched theirs is in conjunction with a price hike. So um, they're moving the price from $7.99 a month to $10.99 a month if you want ad free. If you don't want to pay that $10.99, you can stay at the $7.99 price point and see ads. So I suspect that just by nature of how they've structured that, there is a fair mm -hmm. contingency of viewers that are going to stay in the ad tier. So they may start with a chunkier scale than Netflix, who is having people opt in. Yeah, no, no question. Um, that that is a really good point. That'll be interesting to see. Um, now, the other aspect of this, of course, is password sharing, which is hilarious to me because for so long, Netflix, you know, whether whether or not it was in their terms terms of service to not share, which I believe it was in their terms of service to not share, mm -hmm. there's they were still putting out tweets, you know, like the one that we're showing right now that basically encouraged yeah. it or at least hinted heavily that it was okay. Um, mm -hmm. Difficult genie to put that back into the bottle, of course, at this mm -hmm. point. Um, when might we expect this kind of password sharing crackdown to happen? It sounds like it's not very far. It might be right around the corner. 
Yeah, it's not far off at this point. Early next year is when you can expect it. And and Netflix has tried to do this really delicately. They know that it's a big change for consumers. They have tested a couple of different approaches this year in Latin America. And they've also created a couple of features for consumers that help them either transfer their profile if they were sharing an account to a new account so that you don't lose your viewing history and all your favorites. Um, and then they have also created a new dashboard for account owners to see all of the devices that are logged into their accounts and the last time that those devices watched something. And for a few different customers that I've talked to, that dashboard has really opened their eyes to the extent of sharing that was happening on their account. You know, maybe they left an Airbnb logged in. I talked to somebody oh, who sold a car true. or a Tesla that was still logged in and, and forgot about that. Um, and so the, the dashboards are, are, I think, revealing to people the extent of the sharing that has built up over all this time. And so there may be some incremental logging out of those people, which could then prompt a moment where those previous moochers have to make the decision whether or not to get their own account. Um, so you have that. And, and so heading into the early part of this year, um, we expect in the U.S. for Netflix to sort of pick a game plan. It could look like what they've done most recently in Latin America, which is asking the primary account owner to pay a few dollars more per month to share with a person outside of their household. And Netflix has defined households as people who live together in one place. So um, if you had an account and shared it with your parents who live somewhere else, that would not be allowed and you would have to pay more for them to do that. Yeah, interesting. And then now we have some news this week that the UK Intellectual Property Office uh, actually shared publicly that it sees password sharing as a crime. And mm. I guess the curiosity here is, OK, uh, is this I mean, is this one of those things where they kind of have to say that or is there, is there a possibility that password shares uh, for Netflix and other services? Because I imagine this applies to any service where you're sharing a password and it's explicitly in the terms of service that you're not supposed to do that. I mean, wh what does this what does this lead to staying operations down the line of password sharers or, or <laughs> I don't know, like how serious is this? <laughs> It's so interesting. To me, it's striking that you have a regulator explicitly pointing to yeah. this thing and saying, we consider this a problem and this is a crime. And, and they, they changed some of the wording over the last day or so. So initially it said something like um, password sharing on streaming services was listed as one of the things that is uh, against the law. And it's been a, sort of evolved to accessing without paying a subscription. But but they've I've seen news reports where the office has said basically... The, the point of the matter is the same, which is that we consider it to be a crime or illegal to um, to use an account that you don't pay for without a subscription. Um, and it's interesting to me because it, it kind of touches on an important point of this conversation about password sharing. On the one hand, you have people who say Netflix encouraged it. It may have said something in their terms and conditions, but they didn't really crack down on it. And they seem to encourage it, citing that 2017 tweet, and everybody does it, and it's just a norm in society and how we live and stream. And then there's other the other side of the coin that says, well, actually, like this is content that's expensive to make. It's content that some people pay for, so it's not fair to have another subset of, of the world not paying for it, and mm -hmm. that ultimately it equates in some ways to privacy is like the strongest way I've heard it explained to me. Um, those are two different worldviews. Um, and so I think we're kind of in this moment where Netflix is trying to, you know, bring it to the middle or, or, you know, limit the extent of the sharing and try to get paid incrementally more for the number of people that it can sort of convince to, to pay a few dollars. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. That's exactly, uh, that's exactly where it's headed. Uh, it seems, Do seems I think, to I me mean, where their mind is. Yeah. I mean, what that said, do I think that like there's going to be sting operations related to <laughs> password sharing? <laughs> 
That seems hard to imagine um, unless it's really like a concerted, coordinated effort. It, It could be the kind of thing that a regulator is saying, like, we are firing this warning shot. And then in the future, if it detects something at scale or something right. nefarious, it makes it easier to directly go after. Yeah, I, I think what what comes to mind for me, because I am, you know, a child of the 80s was, you know, beta and VHS and all the all the tapes that you would rent. And at the very beginning of it, it was like FBI yes. warning, <laughs> copying this tape is illegal and you'll go to jail and everything. And it was always the question of like, OK, like that, you know, that's scary to read that. But how on earth would they know? Like, <laughs> it's just a little different here. It's on the internet, you know, but, but it's probably, yeah. and something like that is really geared, like, exactly like you said, probably not for the individual, more so for like the larger scale coordinated thing. Uh, that's a lot easier for them to, to crack down on and recognize. Yeah. I mean, and I, suppose, yeah. you know, there, there's a, there's always been the opportunity for these platforms themselves to police it. Do yeah. they want to necessarily? Yes and right. no. I mean, there's the the big risk. There, there's financial upside if more people agree to pay a few dollars extra to share. There's also a tremendous downside risk if you erode the sort of brand affinity that people have or make people feel frustrated or angry with mm-hmm. you as a company. And that you see that in the way that Netflix has tried to come about this really sort of gently at first yeah. is um, is they don't want to anger their consumer base. They don't want to drive off um, people who are watching and liking their content. I mean, one of the good things about this for Netflix is they have a hundred million people around the world that are watching their stuff and not paying for it. That's a hundred million people that, that want to watch it. The challenge yep. is getting those hundred million people to pay incrementally extra or become subscribers themselves. Indeed. Well, Sarah, it's been a real pleasure getting the chance to talk with you today. And thank you for carving out some valuable time right right before the holidays. I hope you have a wonderful holiday break. Sarah Krauss writes for The Wall Street Journal. Uh, and if people want to fo- follow you online, where can they find you? Are you over on the Mastodon now or are you doing Twitter? or what? <laughs> I am not yet. I'm still on Twitter at by Sarah Krauss. Um, you can also check me out at WSJ.com. Right on. Thank you, Sarah. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Have a good one. All right. Bye. Thanks so much. Up next, we are going to take a look at some of the most popular sites, services, and trends of 2022. But first, this episode of Tech News Weekly is brought to you by the Code Comments Podcast, an original podcast from Red Hat. You know, when you're working on a project, you know, you may be coding something, and you leave behind these small reminders in the code, those little comments. Those are, of course, code comments. Uh, And they're there to help you remember sort of what you were up to. But also, if other people are looking at your code, they go, oh, that's what this line does. That's what this line does. This is what the this was the problem you were trying to solve. Well, this podcast code comments is all about taking that idea and letting you listen in on two experienced technologists as they describe their building process. There's a lot of work that is required to bring a project from whiteboard to actual development. And frankly, none of us can do it alone. The host, Burr Sutter, is a Red Hatter and lifelong developer advocate, as well as a community organizer. In each episode, Burr sits down with experienced technologists from across the industry to trade stories and talk about what they've learned from their experiences. Uh, The most recent episode is all about Cockroach Labs, which makes CockroachDB. And in this episode, Ben Darnell uh, talks about, the chief architect and co-founder of Cockroach Labs, talks about sort of 
the frustration that led to the creation of Cockroach DB. And then what's super neat is you also get a little bit of insight into how Netflix, yeah, that huge company that is trying to uh, push out video and content all over the globe, uh, uses Cockroach DB. So it ends up being a really fascinating look at kind of the, the reason for the creation of this service and then some of the big players that are using it. Very interesting stuff. Uh, and of course, if you want to check out great episodes like that one that I listen to, you can uh, do so by looking for code comments anywhere you listen to podcasts, or you can go to redhat.com slash code comments podcast. So search for code comments in your podcast player. And of course, we'll also include a link in the show notes. And our thanks to code comments for their support of Tech News Weekly and all of the Twit Network. Thank you, Code Comments. All right. Uh, as this is the final live episode of Tech News Weekly for the year, and as the year is coming to a close, I thought it'd be great to have a conversation about some of the trends of this year, some of the uh, most interesting or most, I should say, uh, interested <laughs> uh, sites that were of interest to folks. Uh, and so joining us to talk about this very topic is the Senior Insights Manager at Similar Web. It's David Carr. Welcome to the show, David. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me it's, on. Yeah, it's great to get you here. So uh, before we kind of get into the the story here, I was hope that you could hoping that you could tell us a little bit about Similar Web itself and then your role there as the Senior Insights Manager. Sure. So SimilarWeb is a company that does web metrics, and we help you compare your site against similar websites. That uh, says, says what it says on the tin, as the Brits say. So we gather information from around the Internet and feed it into this big data model that does give you a good sense of how you're doing versus the competition you can see how many visits and page views and how much time people spent on site for you versus a competitor. And if they're doing better than you, then you can get some <laughs> clues about what they're doing better. So, so a, a lot of the use is, is from uh, marketing managers who are trying to do just that. We also actually have a whole team of people who just works with uh, hedge funds and investor types who are trying to get an early read on, say, what internet services are doing better than the competition, and they'll they'll rank according to those sort of things. So, um, uh, yeah, so we always have a, a bunch of buzz of activity uh, just before quarterly earnings come out that's related to that that more uh, investor oriented perspective on different websites and services. Uh, and I'm. I was a tech journalist for, for many years. I hate to call myself a former journalist because I still think that way, but yeah. uh, I'm, I'm, I'm working in a corporation. I'm uh, seeing what stories we can find in the data and trying to bring them to the attention of different journalists. And we also get a lot of incoming requests from the Wall Street Journal, uh, other major publications and smaller publications too, where we'll try and dig up some newsworthy information for them. Uh, so we've been spending a lot of time talking about Twitter and Mastodon and uh, and some of those things lately. 
For sure. So yeah, I have to say it was just kind of fun to go to the site and type in a URL and see what was available there. And uh, you, you folks kind of pull in a lot of different data uh, that is helpful, even for me, just kind of learning about something. So uh, I was fascinated that even as a person, I didn't, you know, there was no accounting to just needed to sign up for or anything like that. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot you can get through the the free site. I mean, obviously, we we do have something to sell. We're we're trying to get people to upgrade, but. Uh, we give you a pretty good taste of what's available for free. Absolutely. Now, starting with social media, because you you just mentioned it, and I think that that has been uh, a big uh, conversation topic this year. Let's chat about Mastodon. So when I look at the people that I follow online, tend to be journalists and tech folks, it does seem like everybody's moving over to to Mastodon from Twitter. But I'm curious, uh, from what you've learned, do the numbers suggest that's true? Uh, Is that the case? And it really seems like this may have happened. I wonder why. In the past uh, two (laughs) to three months, I was hoping you could provide some insight on that as well. Well, sure. There... I don't know whether it's exactly moving. It's more like tiptoeing. It's uh, you know one foot on the platform, the other foot on the train. Uh, <laughs> they're, they're they're checking out what the alternative would be. And I don't know if you can you can show uh, the I sent over a chart showing how yeah, we did Mastodon that, so has has taken off. Um, and you know the the first thing we looked at was just how many people are going to Mastodon social. Uh, and then there's another site called joinmastodon.org. So it's a little bit complicated where you're trying to uh, choose what server you want to be on. And I think that's one of the things that's going to get in the way of it for as if you could kind of zoom in on the, the chart on the, the left there. Um, yeah. The, the, so those two specific domains are the, the ones at the bottom of the chart and they did take off like a rocket around the time that Musk um, took over mm-hmm. uh, with another another surge around the time of a lot of articles coming out saying, what is Mastodon? How do you join? Um, but those two domains are, are just, uh, just jumping off points to, to this broader network that includes thousands of websites, thousands of domains. Uh, so I was able to get a couple of hundred of the largest ones. And so that's the blue line. Yeah, just showing that how was that acti- really. activity has taken off. So um, it, it's interesting. I, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm spending more time on Mastodon. Um, you know, I'm still in the category of the people who hasn't uh, gone through the process of deactivating my Twitter account or anything like that Same. just yet. Uh you know, because things things may change, things may turn around, but uh, it's it's a little bit of a blast from the past where it's um, it is more like Twitter was in early two thousands, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, before it had gotten quite so algorithmic, where you really just did have a reverse chronological feed, and what you saw was based on what your contacts shared, and now it's now it's gimmicked up a, li- a little bit more. Um, uh, sometimes maybe in, in unhealthy ways. So this actually gives us an opportunity to go back and curate our own social feed and, and take control of it to to a greater extent. So, Absolutely. Uh, 
Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of into the rhetoric of it, too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and see, I think that's that, that benefit of uh, having worked uh, primarily as a journalist for so long does give you the ability to kind of dive into, because, of course, with this huge stream of data, to be able to take that and even, I'm, I'm glad that you've got that aggregated look as well, because that is, for the people who are super Mastodon-minded, they tend to go, oh, but you forgot that there are all these little servers that exist, and so you you didn't yes. forget that, which is great <laughs> to include that but, as well. I, mean, I, I guess, yeah, I, mean, there, I think the latest statistic I heard was something like 5,000 servers now, but some of them can be just one person. They, they just set mm-hmm. it up for them or them and their, their two closest friends. Uh, so it, it, it's, it's more like uh, uh, back to the, the stage when everybody had their own email server, um, but, but also... Um, you know, email is a federated system. We don't all have to. We don't all have to be on the same email server to send email to each other. Um, we, we've moved on a little bit from the days of uh, CompuServe and AOL, uh, <laughs> where you were, you were in your little uh, little box. Well, I don't know. If it, I go back that far. Some other people yeah, may yeah. not, but. Uh, <laughs> So one of the other uh, insights you have, and there's a there's a chart that you've included um, for from our person running the boards. It's uh, one of the final tabs that says Twitter quitters. Can you tell yep. us how you can even figure out uh, who might be quitting? And I think this is very clever the way that you've uh, figured this out. And so yeah, this is this is something that you you do need to get into the paid version to be able to do this, but you can segment out. Uh, specific pages that people visited, people landed on, and of course we're, we're sampling data and extrapolating, but but still we're able to capture enough of the activity of people going to. This is the page that you land on after you're not only thinking about it, but you clicked yes. I really want to get rid of my Twitter account. I want nothing to do with this anymore. So when you get to the confirmation page, that's what we're tracking here. You know, similar to in a lot of e-commerce analysis, we'll be following people through the checkout process and trying to see how many people get to the end of the funnel. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I have done other analysis where I've compared this with the number of people who are signing up, uh, and I just looked at this today. So in, in November, uh, even though that that number of people quitting was significant, there's about three times as many signing up. Interesting. So, um, we have to uh, keep some perspective that for everybody who is turned off by Musk and Musk policies, there are other people who are attracted. Um, mm-hmm. you know, maybe some of them for the wrong reasons, but maybe some of them just because they're hearing more about it in the news. And, you know, I never had a Twitter account. I wonder, yeah. I wonder what's going on over there. <laughs> um, so um, uh, it, it, it sort of does go back to that journalistic well, I guess it's more of a, a PR or marketing maxim of uh, just spell our name right and uh, we'll yeah. be happy. <laughs> well, I think uh, the, the power of FOMO is not to be discounted, that's for sure. Um, moving on to AI, this, of course, is a big category. We have covered a lot of stories here on Tech News Weekly about Dolly 2. We had some of the engineers from Dolly 2 on to talk about that. Uh, we've talked about ChatGPT. I did an interview with ChatGPT uh, and other AI <laughs> art. Um, so I'm curious... When did these AI engines start to really take off? And do you expect more growth or do you think the popularity is going to start to kind of level off as we go into the new year? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I've seen um, you know some leveling off. Uh, uh, you know, Dolly from OpenAI was the one that first really caught my attention, and we, we definitely did see a big spike. I think around June was when mm-hmm. they opened it up to anybody could get an account, uh, and a lot of people did uh, and started playing around with it. And, uh, and, and I, I use it for uh, featured images for blog posts sometimes. Or I can't find a piece of clip art, so I just describe one, uh, and uh, and we get to see that. Um, uh, Chat GPT uh, has blown up even bigger, I wow. think, because it's, it's sort of sort of simpler to interact with, um, and I think there's maybe some leveling off there um, that I've seen in the in the daily numbers since. You know, we first got the, this wave of all the news coverage about it. Um, but, it, you know, it's certainly very interesting. And, and I played around with it in terms of, you know, you can get it to – I had it write a, a JavaScript routine. I think I also tried a PHP routine for calculating um, the dates of holidays based for any given year. Mm. Uh, and it you know it comes back with a sam- bit of sample code, and it also explains to you how I got that sample code. Yep. Code comments um, my, my, included. My, my boss had it uh, write a style, a um, write a song in the style of Taylor Swift, lamenting what had happened with Ticketmaster uh, sales. <laughs> so, um, which was you know something else that we wrote about at one point. So, um, you know, you 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 definitely can. I, I mean, I I think of it actually as something that that means writer's block will be a mm-hmm. thing of the past. Uh, I mean, I don't want it to take over my job, but if <laughs> right. I was stuck, I might go to it and, you know, feed in a bunch of facts and say, you know, how would you start this story? See what it comes back with. Uh, couldn't hurt. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, it's uh, it's been a fun kind of jumping off point for those, those different things. And I'm not surprised, like you've said, uh, with the trends uh, sort of taking off even more because of the simplicity. I've got a text box. I type into it. I can talk to it like right. it's human, as if it were human. It's not as tough as the, well, you've got to word things in this way and use these special, uh, you know, words and well, things like that to also, get. Also, I, I don't know that there's another one that's that's really uh, comparable and public and eas- easily accessible uh, right now. Mm-hmm. Whereas with, with Dolly, I think people started it. You know, we're very interested in that, but then they also heard about stable diffusion and, and a bunch right. of others. Uh, so, and, and of course, um, you know, OpenAI, I think until recently, was more of something that you had to be an AI or statistics mm-hmm. geek to know about. Um, you know, very interesting to technologists um, uh, wanting to um, see what that that family of technologies could do. But and, and I have no idea whether they really. Uh, I don't think they necessarily want to be a mass market consumer right. products company. But I don't know if the opportunity is up- there. Um, well, it, it's actually uh, set up under a nonprofit structure. It's supposed to be uh-huh. creating AI for good. So. Yeah, it is we'll interesting see. how there's been uh, sort of th- this this 
I like that what they are doing by showing uh, these different projects ends up kind of teaching the public about AI a little bit more. And right. I think that's what's more behind it is, is the education. Uh, but wow, I think uh, the, the price gets very expensive very quickly when it comes to hosting something uh, like ChatGPT on online as they're doing, as opposed to just the, the technologists who have it running locally. Now, right. And uh, I, and I, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I, I, I imagine that traffic to openai.com was not terribly extraordinary until recently. And so they, <laughs> had, they, they had to scale up quickly. I mean, I have, I have, I have gotten, um, you know, error messages where it seems like the, the mm-hmm. thing is overloaded occasionally, but, uh, it still, it's done remarkably well. Absolutely. Um, one other topic that I wanted to talk to you about, uh, Carvana has, I've seen some some stories as of late, uh, and I'm curious if you have any insight into the popularity of the service. Of course, this is an online used car retailer. Are you seeing more right. people using it, fewer people using it, or rather visiting the sites as you your data shows? Well, I, I think it's in the category of, a lot of uh, e-commerce and online and online-enabled services that uh, partly they're just suffering through very difficult comparisons between how they were doing in the pandemic uh, time period when everything had to be online. I, I think that's a, a large part of the story, more than necessarily any any mismanagement of the company. But it, it, it definitely... Um, has taken a, a dent, and I, I know I suggested that as one of the things I could talk about. But that, that's not—it's not one that I personally researched. I, I re- quickly reviewed what my uh, my colleague had written up on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. But 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 I—I uh, I would just make that broader point that uh, uh, you know certainly in terms of uh, stocks as well as uh, web traffic, everybody's suffering by tough comparisons uh, in in that very digital. Uh, marketplace. Absolutely. Now, lastly, I was hoping that you could tell us about some other insights and trends that you may have come across, ones that you think are worth mentioning before we let you go. Sure. Uh, You know, I I also did something during the year about Notion, the collaboration and note-taking tool. And um, I just, I do enjoy a, a, a graph that just goes straight on up. Up and to the right, <laughs> you, you don't you don't see them that often. And Notion is on that kind of trajectory. Uh, Can you show right that graph, now. John? We've um, got that. Uh, I think you I think you have, may have that somewhere. Yeah. Um, and so it was it was an uh, an interesting one, and it's a tool that I've used myself. You know, one of these things that sort of is in the same category as as an Evernote in terms of a personal productivity tool although they do also have collaboration features uh, built into it. Um, but, um, and, and I'm, it's okay. I don't, I think up and to the right is, is probably yeah, the, the only image you really need to go that. Um, there it is. Uh, yes. Uh, I did also do something on uh, WordPress where, and, and uh, you know, I'm a WordPress fanboy. I, I uh-huh. uh, write plugins. I, I, I work with WordPress. Um, like it's open source uh, ethos, um, but there was uh, some statistic that had come out from somewhere else recently saying that that for the first time in you know a decade and a half or whatever, uh, 
the percentage of websites around the internet running WordPress had declined. Um, and we were able to see that traffic to both WordPress.com uh, and WordPress.org, which is where you go to get the, the open source software, um, you know, they're both on the decline. Um, the only, uh, when I pulled the, the data more recently, I did see an increase actually in WordPress.org traffic. So that's, those are the people who are engaging with the open source version. Um, I mean, it, it is just very recent, but I would tend to attribute it to the fact that their, some of their um, technology for being able to edit the entire website, so all the navigation, all the, uh, basically ed edit the whole template rather mm -hmm. than just edit an individual blog post, to be able to do that all through their editor uh, seems to have improved, have improved dramatically uh, mm. recently. And, uh, you know, the performance, which, um, you know, maybe, uh, you know, 10,000, I don't know how many thousand lines of uh, JavaScript code, but uh, uh, they were, the performance of the editor maybe had been a little bit bogged down. Uh, now it seems to be moving uh, and pretty snappy. And so... Uh, yeah, that's that yellow line you see there. That's uh, on the right. Uh, that's month over month change, and it's just edging into the the positive territory for WordPress.org. WordPress.com is still a little bit in the basement. Um, um, and the the company behind WordPress Automatic has other ways of making money. Uh, so maybe they're capitalizing on those. Uh, I don't know. They they haven't uh, come back with any commentary about those that kind of research. Uh, but I thought it was interesting. Absolutely. And I think too, with uh, folks looking, you know, they, they considered Twitter at one point to kind of be the place where they did the micro blogging or the blogging. And there's been a real, I've seen, especially among again, journos and uh, techie folks going, I'm just going to have my own blog and then I'm not going to worry about all this other stuff. And so I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of people are uh, making use of, of the tools, the, especially the open source tools that WordPress provides as a way to start sure. their own blog now. Although you still tend to need Twitter or Mastodon or something to get <laughs> as people a place to, to share. pay yeah. attention to uh -huh. the blog. Otherwise it, uh, um, it will die. It's obscure. just there. Exactly. It's there in, in, the, in the background. Uh, David Carr, I want to thank you so much for your time today for joining us. Um, of course, folks can head to similarweb.com to see some of your insights. But if they want to follow you online, you haven't closed down that Twitter account yet. Where can they find you? I'm David F. Carr pretty much everywhere. So uh, and on Mastodon, I would be what it's I, I wound up on nerd at at nerd culture, uh, well, at David F. Carr, nerdculture.de. And I don't know why, how I ended up, uh, how I ended up on a German uh, server, but uh, <laughs> I was I, just picking quickly. Uh, they tell me, they tell me you can change that, but. Yes, uh, I, now, uh, I had another friend. Pat who ended up on the German one as well. So it's a pretty common thing. Uh, David, yep. happy holidays to you and yours. And thank you so much for your time today. We appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Thank you, David. Uh, coming up, we're going to continue talking about Mastodon. What can I say? It's just it's in the air right now and how it's doing under the weight of all of this new attention. That's coming up. But first, this episode of Tech News Weekly is brought to you by Barracuda. In a recent email trend survey, 
43% of respondents said that they have been victims of a spear phishing attack, but only 23% said they have dedicated uh, spear phishing protection. Sounds a little bit out of balance, right? How are you keeping your email secure? Well, Barracuda has identified 13 types of email threats and how cyber criminals use them every day. We're talking phishing, conversation hacking, ransomware, all the other baddies that you've heard of plenty of times on this network. Plus 10 more tricks cyber criminals use to steal money from your company or personal information from your employees and customers. Are you protected against all 13 types? Well, email cybercrime is becoming incredibly sophisticated. Attacks are more difficult to prevent than ever. Attacks use social engineering, which is just incredibly complicated to protect against, including urgency and fear to prey on victims. Social engineering attacks, that includes things like spear phishing and business email compromise. That costs businesses an average of $130,000 per incident. High cost for missing that one. As demand for COVID-19 tests increased at the start of 2022, Barracuda researchers saw an increase in COVID-19 test-related phishing attacks, right? They're always kind of looking for the, the hot new kind of trend or thing to latch onto. They saw that increase by 521% between October and January. As public interest rises, for example, in cryptocurrency, that's another fantastic example. The opportunity for attacks becomes incredibly ripe. There's a lot to uh, to find there as the price of Bitcoin increased by almost 400% between October 2020 and April 2021. Barracuda Research found that impersonation attacks grew 192% in the same period. They're all trying to get at that valuable that valuable end game right there. In 2020, the Internet Crime Complaint Center uh, received 19,369 business email compromise uh, complaints with adjusted losses of over $1.8 billion. So securing email at the gateway level it's just not enough anymore. It's still important to leverage gateway security, of course, so you can protect against traditional attacks, things like viruses, zero-day ransomware, spam, all those other threats. But your gateway is defenseless against targeted attacks. Those are really damaging. Protection at the inbox level, including AI and machine learning, it's necessary to detect and then stop the most sophisticated threats. And that's why Barracuda is awesome. You can get a free copy of the Barracuda Report, 13 email threat types to know about. And you can get that right now. You'll see how the cyber criminals are actually getting more and more sophisticated every day. And then how you can build the best protection for your business, for your data and your people with Barracuda. Find out about the 13 email threat types you need to know about and how Barracuda can provide complete email protection for your teams, your customers and your reputation. Get your free ebook right now. You can go to barracuda.com slash TNW. That's barracuda.com slash TNW. Barracuda, your journey secured. And we thank them for their support of Tech News Weekly. All right. So uh, as we told you earlier, we've got three interviews today and I'm really excited for this one. Anyone who's been watching our shows and in particular, the last interview especially knows that the whole Twitter Elon Musk shadow has been impossible to ignore. And one bit of respite for that news has been the surge in attention for Mastodon. Uh, 
and we have, by the way, our own instance, uh, twit.social. So that's, that's happening. That's what I signed up under anyways. It's seen a massive uptick in activity in recent months. But how is Mastodon doing uh, with all of this new attention and all of this influx of people uh, checking it out, you know, kicking the tires, seeing if it's working for them? Joining us to discuss this is Amanda Hoover, staff writer at Wired.com. Amanda wrote uh, the article, Mastodon is hurtling toward a tipping point. Welcome, Amanda. Thanks so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, thank you. Really appreciate it. And again, I know we're right on the, the cusp of the holidays. So taking 15 minutes out of your day, we just totally appreciate you joining us. So first of all, talk a little bit about the kind of the fundamental differences between a social network like Twitter and Mastodon, whether they are similar or not. You know, right now, especially with everything happening with Twitter and people, you know, checking out other services, they're being compared all over the place. Are they comparable? What are those differences? They're comparable in that they're microblogging platforms. So people can go here and post very short messages. They can follow one another. They can reshare messages similar to retweeting, but they're very different in their construction. Um, unlike Twitter, which is a centralized platform now owned by the world's richest man who can make unilateral decisions, as we've seen, Mastodon is a decentralized open source platform. So it operates across many different servers. They're run by different volunteers who wanted to start these servers. Um, it's been around since about 2016, and it was pretty quiet, pretty niche, uh, but it has really seen an explosion in users. They're up to about two and a half million monthly active users as of the last week or so. Um, that number could have even changed more recently, but yeah. they, they've they been, that's a huge growth for a service like this. You know, Twitter has hundreds of millions of users, but for this platform that a lot of people had never heard of, that's explosive in such a short amount of time. And it's not just that there are a lot of users coming over. It's also about, you know, this word that we're throwing around, these instances, like twit.social is an instance of Mastodon. It's just kind of how how part of this open architecture works. So there and, and you know, when we look at that, then we realize that a company like Twitter, you know, owned and operated by Elon Musk currently, you know, a lot of that funding, the the effort happens, you know, and uh, anything bad that happens falls on the shoulders of Elon Musk at the very top of that tree, of which there's been a lot. Um, with Mastodon, you've got a lot of people operating these instances. So they're the ones like are are they the ones that are footing the bill entirely and having to manage all of the really complicated stuff that a social network mm -hmm. normally has to? Pretty much a lot of them do crowdfund. They have Patreons. They seek donations from their users to keep them going. And a lot of them have done that. But especially a lot of donations have gone up a lot as more people have used these because running these servers isn't necessarily cheap. Um, a person I spoke to for this article um, told me that he was spending about 100 pounds. He was in the UK. Um a month prior to the giant influx of users he's seen to keep the server online. And, you know, he was happy to do that, maybe only getting a small portion of his costs covered by donations. Since his donations have gone up a lot more, they have more operating costs um, in the bank to keep going for a few months and maybe worry about that a little bit less. But with so many new users coming in, I've spoken to other instance runners and instance admins who have had to upgrade because they're, the servers that they had were just crashing. They weren't enough to sustain the amount of activity that was suddenly happening because it's not just 
the signups and getting through all of that, it's the amount of posts and activity increased so much every single day um, on these instances that have tens of thousands, some of them more than 100,000 users signed up now. Right, right. And that's a, that's a lot for uh, a person who decides to spin up an instance, you know, because, oh, this is curious. I, sure, I could do that. Suddenly you're faced with 100,000 users. It's a whole different story. Now, Eugene uh, Rochko actually built Mastodon back in 2016. And if the cost to run an instance is actually footed by the person who launches it, as we're talking about, and not Eugene, not the people behind Mastodon, but the people who decide, hey, I want to spin up twit.social or whatever, what kind of impact do the crew creators of Mastodon, Eugene and others behind the company, actually have to encourage consistent, healthy growth of the platform when these things are kind of individualized? Yeah, I think that they've been a little bit overwhelmed. Um, I know that he was working 14-hour days, um, trying to make a ton of improvements, trying to keep things online. Uh, There is a nonprofit that he runs that kind of oversees some funding for Mastodon generally or covers some of his costs, but it's, it's been a huge lift for a lot of people. Um, Mastodon is a small team and then the instance runners, you know, there are thousands of them, but a lot of them are working in small teams as well. So this network, what's so different about it. Um, when you compare it to Twitter, Twitter's goal is to make money. Um, they have advertising they have investors, you know, that that has always been the goal of a platform like Twitter and so many other centralized social media platforms. Mastodon really seems to be a labor of love for so many people. They mm. are very attached to their instances, to their communities there. Um, they're really attached to the idea and, and very supportive of it. Everyone that I've spoken to that runs an instance really does it because they love it and they want that community feel. And they also want the, the on instances they can control a lot more and moderate the content so they can make rules that keep hate speech out and harassment. Um, So a lot of people, I think, never thought it would grow to this point. And they're sort of all seeing how this this shakes out. I think you're you're bringing up the moderation aspect, and that's um, that's that's really top of mind for me, right? When I think of social networks and social media in general, not just Twitter, I'm also talking about Facebook and, and TikTok and all of them. I've, I've, you know, we have read countless stories about the challenges, the difficulty that the amount of, of people required in order to successfully and properly moderate and keep these platforms uh, safe, not just from hate speech, of course, but, you know, from CSAM, from uh, child sexual exploitation material, things like this, the really hard stuff. So how how is that done when you're when we're looking at a federated instance by a random person who says, you know, I'm going to start up a, you know, my own instance. And then like I have to imagine some of them are faced with these similar challenges that can be almost scarring for, to to a certain degree for a lot of people who have had to moderate around them. Now it's just in the hands of anyone who decides to spin up an instance. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. I spoke to a few attorneys this week who really um, explained that you're you become more than a user when you start an instance. You're essentially becoming your own internet service provider, and you yeah. have to abide by the same kind of rules that exist for a plat- running a platform like Twitter. Um, copyright is a big one. Register, and it just takes a few minutes. They just have to register um, to be compliant under the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. 
um, which it, it doesn't cost very much money. It doesn't take very much time and they just have to agree to remove copyrighted material. But if someone neglects to do that, which a lot of people I think don't know that law very well because they've never had reason to be aware of it, if they weren't running something, um, they could be on the hook for lawsuits. It's the same. They have to follow rules about children 13 and younger signing up um, and collecting data. They have to, if they come across child sexual exploitation material, they are mandated to report that. So there are a lot of issues that come up that people just need to be aware of. Um, Attorneys say, you know, these aren't impossible for a small team to do. They just have to understand the laws around what they're working with. But they also, in addition to those, those were just U.S. laws. If your server is available in other countries, mm-hmm. you are liable to the regulations there as well. Um, and that Europe has different rules, you know, rules even can change state by state for certain things. So it is it is a bit daunting, but there are attorneys who are working in this space, who are hearing from people running instances, and there's it's impossible to abide by all of these as a small instance. Yeah, I can only imagine. Um, and I, you know, again, I will just point to the fact that we have our own instance. So it's not like I'd have to go very far to, to ask how that goes, but we, but it's, but it's very controlled, right? Leo Laporte has, has said many times on the shows, like in order to get access to this instance, you got to let me know that you are a fan of the network, that you watch our shows. Cause he's not just letting anyone in and that in mm. itself has the, uh, has the opportunity to filter out a lot of what might come, you know, in this kind of, you know, unmoderated space, that sort of thing. If someone is running an instance and all of this is just too much for them, say, you know, that their, their user base is built up, they can't afford it. They don't want to deal with the headache anymore. And the instance goes away. Like what happens to all those users who open their accounts through that instance? That's a, that's a question that I've had for a while. Yeah, it is possible to move your account from one instance to another. If you download your data, um, you can start over. There's some directions on how to do that on Mastodon's website. Um, also as well, when you're going to join Mastodon and you, you go to their main page that has some instances listed, those are involved in an agreement. You know, they've agreed to moderate for certain things and they've also agreed to give three months notice if they're ever going to shut down the instance, mm-hmm. which gives people more time to migrate. So some of those are the bigger ones that a lot of people have joined. Um, and that's something that was in place prior to the big rush of people, you know, it was a, it was a safeguard that was in there um, just based on the nature of the service. But we're seeing as well, you know, concern that Twitter combusts and everyone's data is going to be gone and lost and we'll lose this whole era of internet history and also world history that's really been documented on Twitter. So centralized platforms aren't necessarily, you know, guaranteed to be around forever either. And Mastodon does have some some safeguards in the idea that no one person can ever own it and that it could be, you know, continued on by those who still want to be involved. Yeah. Well, I can say from my limited experience with it in the last, I'd say, a couple of couple of months at this point is that it's been kind of a refreshing change. Like, yes, it's less total people, but the people that are there are very engaged and things kind of stay on topic and they don't get all squirrely the way <laughs> I had gotten so adapted to Twitter, just going in all of these directions that like I really didn't want to go. And uh, I'm just not seeing that on Mastodon yet. Maybe that's a, a matter 
matter of this kind of like smaller, kind of more controlled, you know, uh, instance sort of approach. Maybe it's just the, yeah, the fact that there's less users, uh, I hope doesn't go there, but yeah, who the heck knows? But anyways, I'm having a lot of fun with there. Are you on Mastodon? If people want to follow you on Mastodon, can they find you? I am. I'm at Amanda Hoover. You can find me there. Um, I, you know, just started, I'm building up my network. I started in November, but you know, it's, it's been a slower buildup and I'm seeing more and more reporters or just other people that I know and sources, you know, making their way over there over the past couple of weeks. Yeah, it's certainly happening quite a bit, especially like in the journalism and, you know, podcasting circles and everything like that. For, for mm-hmm. what that means, I don't know. But uh, anyways, Amanda, thank you so much for carving out some time for us today. Amanda, of course, writes for Wired.com. You can search for Amanda Hoover there. And then, of course, you can find her on Mastodon, as, as she said. Thank you again. Really appreciate your time. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. <laughs> Take care. All right, Micah, over to you. You've got a story of the week. And this was a this was a topic that I was that I was searching for an interview around as well. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. So this was an interesting uh, story. Uh, Multiple sites had picked up on it. But um, there's an attorney, uh, Kelly Conlon, and uh, Conlon had gone to the Radio City Music Hall with uh, Conlon's daughter to see the Rockettes, I guess the... um, uh, Girl Scout troop was going to see the Rockettes. And uh, Conlon says that when she got into the Radio City Music Hall, so, you know, you go through the metal detector um, and, you know, get ready to go in, there was a guard, uh, or actually uh, multiple guards, who came up to Conlon and said, uh, according to Conlon, quote, our recognition picked you up. Um, Conlon was then escorted outside and had to wait outside while her daughter and the Girl Scout troop watched the Radio City Music Hall's uh, Rockettes show. And the reason for this is because um, the company that owns the Radio City Music Hall, called Madison Square Garden Entertainment, is currently in the midst of a lawsuit with the law uh, office uh for which Kelly Conlon works. So again, an attorney works for a law office. That law office is involved in a lawsuit with Madison Square Garden Entertainment, which owns the Radio City Music Hall and made uh, Kelly Conlon leave because uh, there was, you know, that conflict of interest or what have you. Now, what is fascinating about this is, um, well, there are a couple of things actually that are fascinating about this. First of all, uh, and I'm going to call it MSGE from now on, it's Madison Square Garden Entertainment. MSGE, they have not, will not, it seems, confirm that uh, the attorney was facially recognized. They won't confirm that facial recognition Mm. was involved with uh, Conlon. However, The company will confirm that it does use facial recognition. And in fact, if you go into the Radio City Music Hall, there are signs that say that facial recognition is involved in what they're doing. Uh, The company says it's about safety, of course, and uh, all of that. But um, based on what the guards are uh, reported to have said and the fact that they use facial recognition, we can start to kind of see that it's likely that um, facial recognition was used uh, in the process to determine that Kelly Conlon had arrived on scene and was not allowed uh, to attend because when uh, Kelly was talking, when Kelly Conlon was talking to the guards, uh, she says that they already knew her name. 
they knew the law office that she worked for. And as I said, they said, apparently, uh, our recognition picked you up. Um, what is also interesting is that uh, Conlon does not work on the case involving uh, the Madison Square Garden Entertainment Company. But because she works at the firm, that is why she was escorted off the premises and not allowed to attend the event. Now, judges are not happy about this. Uh, And I'm going to read a little bit from the Verge article because I think that it very clearly points things out. The policy has been controversial from a legal standpoint. When lawyers from another case brought it up, Judge Kathleen McCormick, who happens to be the judge uh, that presided over two Elon Musk cases, called it, quote, the stupidest thing I've ever read. Another judge in an entirely separate case actually ruled Quote, plaintiffs may not be denied entry into any shows where they possess a valid ticket. So MSG Entertainment is not supposed to be able to uh, stop someone who has a valid ticket from entering the event. What is allowed, according to this other judge, is for the ticket to not be sold in the first place. So uh, if this is their policy, which one judge says is the stupidest thing I've ever read, um, then they are allowed to keep certain people from buying tickets. But if that person has a valid ticket, then this judge says they have to be allowed to attend the event. Despite that ruling, uh, MSG continued to tell law firms that they could not go on the premises and that those tickets could be revoked at any time. So... There's now on top of the uh, legislation that's going on or the, the not the legislation, but the litigation that's going on involving MSG in the first place. It seems like there may be more cases going forward as they try to get MSG to be compliant in the ruling of what's going on here. But of course, this all boils down from the tech standpoint to a conversation about facial recognition and how it can be used in these different ways, because If it is, um, oh, also MSG won't say what company they're using for facial recognition technology. But if it's being used for, uh, quote unquote, the public safety, and it is, I don't know, somehow tied into uh, databases of law enforcement. And so therefore they can find people who are, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, accused of different crimes or what have you. Um, That is one aspect But this is uh, potentially another aspect where every single person is uh, being identified, having their name run. And then if they're an enemy of the company, uh, then they are, you know, accosted by the guards and asked to leave the premises. That is where, of course, you've got your privacy advocates um, having a conversation about uh, the, the sort of overreach, a potential overreach that could be here. And it, it makes me wonder... Uh, if Conlon had been wearing some of those uh, glasses that fool the AI, <laughs> if uh, uh, she would have been able to attend this concert, but in the end had to wait outside uh, while her daughter and the rest of the Girl Scout troops did did the event. So yeah, it's just um, an interesting use of the technology uh, and an interesting shirking of a ruling that was already in place, I think here is, uh, the, the other kind of concern. Um, 
You know, if, the, if, if you've already been told you have to do this thing and you're not doing this thing, not, not a good look. So I'm curious mm-hmm. your thoughts on this, Jason. Yeah, I don't know. As, as I'm kind of like, you know, reading and listening and everything, kind of find myself a little conflicted, like, mm-hmm. uh, like at, at the core I know I know that I can identify within myself that facial recognition just happening out in the world and then action happening based on that like feels icky to me not because I don't want people who are really doing bad things caught but because there's but because that is like the best thing that could happen from that and there are a lot of really bad things that also happen when that is acceptable it, so so there's that, right? Like facial recognition mm-hmm. on its surface as, as a way to identify people, at, you know, who are just walking the world. I feel a little, a little sketch about that from the beginning. At the same time, I can also understand if a company is, uh, or a person or whatever, the owner of a, of a business, if that company is, is, you know, litigating around something and they want to be sure to protect themselves to not, mm-hmm. you know, to, you know, then there is a right there, I think, for them to be cautious about who they let in, you know, like, mm-hmm. like, like on one hand, it kind of feels like overreach to say anyone from the firm. And meanwhile, she's not actually working on the case, but she is part of the firm. So therefore she's not let out. On the other hand, I mean, you know, litigation, there, there's a lot of consequence around that. So who, who are they to say, you know, who, who is the, uh, the, the, the group of attorneys to say, oh no, but that's, don't worry. She's just going in there to watch the Rockettes show and not some other, you know, reason, rationale or whatever. So I'm a little conflicted on it, but I think at, at the core though, residing over all of that confliction is just the fact that facial recognition used in this way just always gives me a really icky feeling. I I'm with you um, because I also feel uh, that confliction conflict. Yeah. I feel that. I don't even know if that's a word confliction. Um, I don't know. I feel that conflict um, in the sense that it is uh, if there is concern that, you know, somebody could be spying or what have you. Yeah. um, Then I get it. (laughs) Uh, I get why they have that, that, you know, the desire to not have somebody come in, but um it's it's in when it's on this kind of individual scale uh, yeah. that's where these little stories kind of go oh man i hadn't thought about how that could be uh you know how how it could go this way or it could go that way and you kind of go oof that that's yeah stinks for this individual person who's not even involved in the case in the first place yeah and i don't so. think this is the only time that we hear about that either right like these are the things that i think as more and more facial recognition systems are deployed and used in these ways we hear more and more of this stuff and then we start to really kind of move into the territory that makes me very nervous about just widespread facial recognition systems everywhere identifying everyone's you know move you know every move through through this world kind of it's it gets really it gets really messy and uh there is some good that that comes out of that but there's also a lot of bad that i think it just goes part and parcel with it and um, absolutely you know you can't ignore that you know you can't ignore that stuff just because it does catch some criminals you know mm-hmm. so yeah <sighs> conflicted on that same same <laughs> We end with conflict today. (laughs) Yes, we are going to wrap up this conflicted feeling that we're feeling right now and uh, go ahead and say goodbye for the year as far as 
uh, live Tech News Weekly, uh, live recorded shows are concerned. Like I said earlier, this is the last one. There will be an episode in the feed next Thursday. So twit.tv slash TNW. You'll get our some of our favorite interviews from the year. Mike and I picked out some, uh, and uh, that'll be our best of. So look for that. The following week, I think, Micah, you're actually out the first episode of the new year. So I'm going to be I solo. So we'll get a, a bunch of uh, I will miss you, first of all. Uh, but we will get, a, you know, a bunch of um, of uh, interviews on that show to fill the void of Micah. But he'll be back <laughs> the following week. So, <laughs> yes, I will be back soon after that. So and then we'll lock things in uh, for the rest of the year. No. Uh, yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, oh, is it my turn? Do I say my it's turn, your turn now? See, look, yeah. I'm already ready to start the end of the year. Uh, if you'd like to get all of our shows ad-free, you can do that and help support the network by joining Club Twit at twit.tv slash Club Twit. There you will find the option to subscribe starting at $7 a month or uh, $84 a year. And when you do, you get every single Twit show with no ads because you are in turn supporting the content. So no uh, sponsors there. You get access to the Twit Plus bonus feed that has extra content you won't find anywhere else. Behind the scenes, before the show, after the show, all that kind of magic, uh, as well as access to the members-only Discord server, which is a fun place to chat with your fellow Club Twit members and also those of us here at Twit. We'd love to have you join the club uh, starting at $7 a month, $84 a year. And when you do so, it doesn't stop there. You also get access to the Untitled Linux Show, which, as you might imagine, is a show all about Linux. You get access to Hands-On Windows, which is Paul Therott's uh, short-format show about Windows tips and tricks, and a show featuring yours truly, uh, Hands-On Mac, where I give you all sorts of tips and tricks about using your Apple devices. Uh, so that is a great place, uh, or rather a great extra package that you get just as part of your Club Twit subscription. So we really try to make this a very valuable subscription to you. And in return, we thank you uh, for sub, uh, supporting the network and uh, the shows that we make. If you would like to follow me online, I'm at Micah Sargent on many social media networks, including Mastodon. You can also uh, check uh, out chihuahua.coffee. That's C-H-I-H-U-A-H-U-A.coffee, where I've got links to the places I'm most active online. Uh, you can catch Hands on Mac later today, where I'm talking about the Freeform app that just made its way onto your iPhones and iPads. Uh, you can also check out, coming in the new year, on Sundays... Ask the Tech Guys, the show that I'm doing with Leo Laporte, where we take your questions and uh, your tech questions, do our best to answer those. Uh, and Tuesdays for uh, iOS Today, which I record with Rosemary Orchard. So uh, lots of places to tune in and hang out. And we appreciate you. Jason Howell, what about you? Well, I am still on the Twitters, so at Jason Howell. I'm also on the Mastodons, so twit.social slash at Jason Howell if you want to just jump right to my profile and add me over there. I will look forward to seeing you either place. It doesn't matter to me. Uh, big thanks to John Ashley at the studio for a year of awesomeness. Big thanks to Burke for testing things behind the scenes. Also a year of awesomeness. Uh, everyone behind the scenes, actually, who helps us do the show each and every week, whether I've named you or not. Thank you. And to you who continue to watch and listen to us as we interview and talk with each other about the, the week's biggest tech news. Thank you. We appreciate you. And uh, we will see you next week with the best of and in the new year with a new live episode. We'll see you then. Thanks for watching. Bye, everybody. Bye bye. Hey, we should talk Linux. It's the operating system that runs the Internet, but your game consoles, cell phones, and maybe even the machine on your desk. 
and you already knew all that. What you may not know is that TwitNow is a show dedicated to it, The Untitled Linux Show. Whether you're a Linux pro, a burgeoning sysadmin, or just curious what the big deal is, you should join us on the Club Twit Discord every Saturday afternoon for news, analysis, and tips to sharpen your Linux skills. And then make sure you subscribe to the Club Twit exclusive Untitled Linux Show. Wait, you're not a Club Twit member yet? Well, go to twit.tv slash club twit and sign up. Hope to see you there. <laughs>